Surely, it was the idea of a madman. To clean out a series of abandoned grain silos, paste plastic climbing holds on the concrete walls, and open it up as a climbing gym? At the time, this gym, Upper Limits, was billed as the largest in the world. And something about the simplicity and the immediacy, the sport of it, drew me in, much more than climbing outside. It was a pill of Prozac, a shot of serotonin and endorphins into my hollow body. It all begins with the figure eight, the knot of eternity, a fitting beginning to something that can capture your life and make it whole over and over again, and be that center, that place you can go, as long as you are able to, to enter a moving meditation. That is now. This was then. It took me three days to master that knot, but once I had it, I had it forever. This is Luke Mihal with the Dirtbag State of Mind podcast from the Climbing Zine. This is episode two, and we are going to get right into American Climber, uh, my memoir. This, uh, this beginning of it is you know, really sitting down and looking at it and rereading it. This really was the, the worst time of my life, and it, it has several episodes that were the worst episodes in my life. And it took me a long time to to get them down on paper. Um, yeah, I think the words express perfectly uh, what I was going through. Um, but to look back at it, you know, it to me it makes sense why everything happened. Getting into drugs and really just always being on something and not in that time period. You know, I'm a person that, that truly needs exercise, um, yoga, breathing. These things are really important to me. And at that time I was having zero exercise. I was smoking cigarettes and, uh, you know, I, I'm not, I'm certainly not a straight edge person this day. I think that if you can, moderation is key. I think a lot of people can't do moderation, but I, I found my way with that. But I also have an addictive personality. All of this also occurred during the pre cell phone era. So I think a lot of these things that I go through running away from home, really being disconnected from everyone that I was close to. It was something that I felt I had to do. And, and looking back, I think it did get me to where I wanted to go. You know, life is messy. These, these chapters certainly are a messy, messy time period in my life. And I'm just really grateful that I, I survived it. And Part of the reason I really want to tell my story now is that I think this story could benefit other people. I think that when I was going through these issues, I felt like I was all alone. And uh, for me, it's really important to put this stuff out there now for people to realize, you know, mental health is, is such a big topic now. And I think we're not even close to understanding it and understanding uh, what people go through and that depression can actually be quite a normal response uh, to the world. But this was tough for me to write, and then it was also, it wasn't tough to put out there, though. I think, there, for me, there's a, a fine line of remembering things and feel like, feeling like it's tough. But then actually putting it out there was very cathartic. Uh, my mother even read the book, and this was probably the hardest on my family. The, these episodes that I was going through, they were hard on me, but I think they were probably hardest on my family. You know, I'm grateful for the love of my family and friends, and I think that's what really helped me bounce back. 
couple things before we get started. As I note in many of my intros, the best way to support the climbing zine is to subscribe. And this can be as low as 25 bucks to subscribe to the zine. We often have sales going on on our Instagram account and our store. But right now, the best way to support this podcast and support the climbing zine is going online, searching climbing zine store, going to our Instagram page and going to the link in our bio, making a click and spending just a few dollars and uh, keeping the stream alive. The subscriber base and our sponsors have really kept us going. And in uh, uncertain times like we are in right now, the subscription base is even more important because even if things do drop down with the economy, it's easy to stay afloat with our subscription base. This is one of those things I'm not trying to get rich at. And I'm also trying to diversify our offerings. So I'm trying to offer a podcast. I'm offering a zine. We're creating more and more YouTube videos. We just released Grateful Hustle, which you can find on our YouTube channel. Let's uh, let's get into episode two from the Dirtbag State of Mind podcast. And this is going to be the beginning of reading American Climber. When I was a child, I had a severe case of what doctors call attention deficit hyperactivity disorder. I was treated with medicine. My parents tried to remove sugar from my diet. And in general, I was an angsty spirit who got into trouble and fights. I was also obsessed with sports. The hours spent playing basketball in my front driveway and pretending I was a hero are some of my most vivid memories as a kid growing up in the Midwest. I hope that someday ADD will be renamed. Because there's another side to it, a most beautiful, creative, mind-expanding side. I can only speak for myself, but once I found something I loved in the intellectual arena, I discovered I could focus for hours at a time, a deep, profound, meditative focus. It took me three colleges and many, many courses to find my passion, but there it was in the written word. I found focus in climbing as well. Climbing allowed the same escape as the concrete driveway, except the stakes were much more than imaginary games. They were life and death. Thus, a new focus had to be found, and much more importantly, I had to learn how to be brave. Those lessons happened on the rocks across the United States, starting with the sweaty gray sandstone of southern Illinois to the unforgiving granite of the Gunnison Valley, and eventually stretching all the way to the west coast, to California, and the rock-climbing promised land that we call Yosemite. And there was much in between. What lies in between is the ether, and a sort of holding on to the past while also trying to let it be the past, and still hoping your best days are in front of you. One moment you're packing a pickup truck, heading west with barely a couple hundred bucks that is supposed to last for the entire trip, and the next moment you've got a wife and baby in tow and you're signing up for a mortgage. I have managed to avoid the major commitments of adulthood so far, Perhaps that is why I have the leisure time to compose these words. And a few words on why I write these stories. I have to. I made the decision as a writer to make it on my own. Several years ago, I left behind a better-paying writing job with benefits to pursue this path of writing books, all while holding down a day job to pay the bills. In the last two years, I've seen my work go to print, and now, with two books of short stories under my belt, I'm ready to make this leap into a memoir. These days, I love climbing more than ever, and the writing flows well. I am not the type of writer who says that you have to write every day. I am the type of artist that says if the writing isn't happening that day, go do what you love, if you can. 
Go breathe the fresh air and clear the mind. Go dream and keep it fresh. Even if I know only a few people would read this book, I would still write it. The fact that I know many more than a handful will read it and now listen to it feels like the greatest blessing of my life, that my passion and my work can overlap so heavily. And I thank you for that word. Chapter 1. It all began, my climbing life, near the end of my time in the flatlands when I was battling some serious mental illness that nearly killed me. I won't bother talking about that too much. Many of us have our own epic of sadness, our tragedy, real or imagined, and I hit mine at 20 years old, right in the heartland of America. My sadness began with happiness. A child of sport, a kid who read his first words in the sports page of the local newspaper and lived a life of fantasy in his mind. I was obsessed with basketball, baseball, and football. Watched all the games, collected baseball cards, and spent hours in the front driveway, shooting hoops, with each passing hour playing ball with my friends. I became more lost in play, in my happy place. I was watched over by two loving parents who provided for me and cared for me, simple mid-class Westerners. My dad was an accountant, and my mom was a teacher. I've blocked out the boring parts of my childhood. I have a hard time remembering the names of my teachers and classmates, perhaps a symptom of ADD, but I can vividly remember the basketball court outside my parents' house. A simple concrete driveway with a hoop, and that was where I would spend many hours practicing, shooting, playing pickup games, and most importantly, living out the fantasy that I was the star in the final game, and I had to make the shot to win for our team. The highlight of my basketball career came before my freshman year of high school when my parents sent me to Michael Jordan basketball camp. That camp was just two blocks from my grandmother's house in the suburbs of Chicago. We got daily talks from Mr. Jordan himself, and I watched wide-eyed as my hero dropped knowledge to us. It was probably the best week of my childhood. I found an intense focus and even made the all-star team at the camp. In reality, I wasn't that good. I was just better than the other suburban kids who had money to go to the camp. I knew there were many kids back home who were better than me, but their parents couldn't afford to send them to the camp. My childhood sports fantasies died shortly after, as I approached 16. I was cut from tryouts from the basketball team my freshman year of high school. Instead of crying like I would have in junior high, I simply stopped trying. Then it was cars. Ford Mustangs became my obsession. I worked hard at my restaurant job and saved my pennies. And finally, I hadn't earned enough money to buy a real Mustang, a 5.0 liter V8, the fastest car in my high school. How did I know? Anyone who thought they had a contender would square up with me on some country roads and drag race alongside the cornfields. I never lost. This was just the beginning of my taste for illegal behavior. Perhaps it's an American thing, freedom. My friends and I drove our fast cars around and found liquor and easy women. Dangerous things at any age. And then marijuana, probably the least dangerous of those. And then psychedelics, powerful and dangerous, the best or the worst, depending on the vibes. I had crashed more than one car by the time I was a senior in high school. The fast Mustang was the last to crash, but it was a reality check. I didn't have a car for a while, and then I got the cheapest car possible. 
an old Honda, barely running with the bumpers falling off. I was going through phases like any teenager will. Was I the sports guy or the car guy? Clearly, I was skilled at neither. And then, shortly after that, first hit of weed, some new vibrations were in the air. Jerry Garcia and the Grateful Dead. I started listening to the Grateful Dead the week Jerry Garcia died. At first, it was just one song, Uncle John's Band, that entranced me, and then many. And, as my sports fantasies were dying and I didn't know what my passion was, I decided that I would become a hippie. I was as poorly suited to become a hippie as I was a sports guy, but I went there. I bought the dead albums, traded bootlegs, started smoking weed every day, took mushrooms and LSD, and made new hippie friends. This all collided with my preppy sports guy image, and the awkwardness was legendary. Growing up in America. God knows what my parents thought of me in those days. My parents are simple Midwestern Catholics. The best of that in every way. They were simple, and I was complex. Confused. Lost. Just trying to find something real in the world. There were nice side effects to the confusion and awkwardness. First, when I started smoking pot all the time and it was in trance with the dead, I lost my desire to fight. All my life I'd been a fighter, from grade school through high school. I rarely backed down from an argument, resulting in more than one suspension and more than one black eye that I'd lie about to my parents. And then there was Kerouac. It's fucking cliche to write about Kerouac, so I will dance with him and his words. Hippies read Kerouac, especially on the road, so I did too. I had an old paperback copy lent to me by a now-forgotten friend. Kerouac opened up the road, even if it was the late 1950s highway. Once I learned that Kerouac and his buddy Neil Cassidy, some of the original beatniks, were the predecessors to the hippies, that made me like them even more. Then I started to read Timothy Leary, the original American psychedelic academic hero, and things really got out there. I don't think I was born to be out there. But I guess a lot of life is wasting time and figuring out who you are. Some Americans are born into that right away. And in some ways, I'm jealous of those people. Those who have one career and one wife and two kids and one truck and rarely leave the nest that is home and don't yearn and wander for more. Those who are happy with the simplicity that is Midwest America. I had three genuine hippie friends that I made in high school. And I looked to them as my spiritual, philosophical, and recreational guides. Two were roommates. They loaned me On the Road, The Electric Kool-Aid Acid Test, and the Timothy Leary books. One of them spent the summer in jail that year after high school for something stupid, like weed. We wrote each other letters and poured our souls out to each other. The correspondence felt real, something that meant something to me and something to him. I'd always felt a calling to write. My mother was an English teacher. But until a man has experience, what can he really write about that anyone would want to read? By the time my senior year at Bloomington High School had finished, things seemed to be going all right, on paper. I'd been accepted into college, my grades were okay, and I'd stopped getting into fistfights. But to maintain all this, I had to take a lot of drugs. First were the cigarettes. I'd started innocently smoking a couple with my friends and then moved to a pack a day and I was taking Dexedrine, a stimulant used to treat ADD. I was also smoking pot all the time, 
and drinking soda, a knockoff version of that green stuff that looks like nuclear waste. And alcohol, of course, the drink of the masses, the tonic that runs through the veins of nearly every single college student at the time. My heart beat to the drum of substances. The craziest part was that I probably seemed normal when I entered higher education. Sure, my hair was unruly and I wore tie-dyed shirts, but what college campus doesn't have these sort of characters running around? The first school I went to, Western Illinois University, was situated in a small town surrounded by cornfields, as much of Illinois is. It was a frat and sorority school, and of course, I rejected getting involved in those sort of things. But essentially, the rituals of college are not that much different if you're in a frat or not. Binge drinking, sleeping around, smoking weed, and a pack of cigarettes were given. I did study, continuing to pump that cocktail of substances into my body. The weirdest thing about this college was that one of the top majors was law enforcement. And these kids were the worst behaved. They abused drugs and alcohol more than anyone else. Maybe they just thought they were getting out of their systems, or maybe they were preparing to be corrupt, big city cops. I survived that first year of college, but I didn't really like Western Illinois, so I decided to transfer down to Southern Illinois, where there were more hippies. A party school, a bad place to be lost. That summer was a haze. Shit, ever since I embarked on such a strange yet very American cocktail of drugs, life was a haze. Something happened, though. I tried rock climbing for the first time. The rocks of the state are down in southern Illinois. Gray sandstone outcroppings through rolling hills. One of my three hippie friends was Caleb, a wiry guy who, like me, was a fiend for cigarettes and weed. He had also seen the Grateful Dead at that very last show at Soldier Field in Chicago. He was something of a veteran in a scene I wanted to be a part of. So, Caleb took me down to Jackson Falls, along with some of his buddies from the suburbs of Chicago, which was where he had moved to Bloomington from. Caleb had been talking up climbing since I first met him. I was interested in the trip, because there would be beer and weed. We camped, and I hadn't camped since family camp years before in Minnesota, We climbed. I didn't find it all that interesting. Some of the people on the trip were heroin addicts. They snuck away into their tents to put needles in their arms. We jumped off a 30-foot cliff into a small pool of water. That was interesting, but terrifying. We drove back into the normalcy of central Illinois. I transferred to Southern Illinois University down in Carbondale, where there were more hippies, but the same general spirit of any large higher education institution. Plenty of frats and sororities. My tendencies towards drugs and alcohol were encouraged by my peers. A great sort of emptiness came over me, and I tried to fill it. Did you know that The Climbing Zine is the world's creative climbing publication? We chose that tagline after a few years of being in the game to reflect that this is a publication for everyone out there. This isn't just the West. This isn't limited towards any specific group of people. This is for every person who appreciates climbing in the world. If you haven't subscribed, we'd really encourage you to do so at climbingzine.com or you can head over to our Instagram page, The Climbing Zine, and you can check out the link in our bio. Thanks, everybody.
chapter 2. The most dangerous part of anyone's life is encountering risk and danger without any direction on how to dance with it. With sex, drugs, and rock and roll, there was something that captured my imagination, but I had no idea how to dance. And I have no idea how I attracted a woman at that point in my life, awkward as I was. Perhaps she was on drugs. She was definitely on drugs. Charisse was a flower child, a hippie from the suburbs of Chicago who had the same taste for recreation that I did. She dressed in the type of homemade hippie clothes that many hippies wear and carried a scent of patchouli. I met her in the bar, and our relationship became one of weed and drunken hookups. I operated from high to high, starting off in the morning with a cigarette, then popping dexedrine to focus in school, getting high midday in my dorm room and finishing most nights with alcohol. Then, from time to time, we'd take psychedelics. But my interest in those was waning because of bad trips. One time after eating some LSD, my equilibrium became disoriented, and I was unable to function. It lasted for hours. I put a glass on a table, and it appeared as though only half of the glass was on the table, one of the most frightening experiences of my life. I thought it was never going to end. Another time on mushrooms, I had caught some bad vibes and started to have a bad trip. And with no mentor to help me through it, I hit the streets and walked alone. A fire hydrant sank deep into the earth and talked to me, saying something very sad. And then, on a flat sidewalk, I walked down, deep down, like an escalator moving down. And my heart sank into my stomach, and I wondered if I'd ever have a soul again. I formed a hippie crew in Carbondale. We did hippie things, mostly smoking weed and going to late-night concerts. Charisse was my first real girlfriend, and I was happy to have a girlfriend. But could I take a girl like that? home to mom and dad? Jeff was a hippie friend from home. He seemed peaceful and mature enough. He had long locks of curly blonde hair, and his apartment carried an air of hippie sophistication. With stones from across the west, a constant stream of burning incense mixed with the Grateful Dead, and always fine weed to be smoked. Jeff was a mentor for my hippie behavior, and at our best moments, we escaped into the woods that surrounded Carbondale and had philosophical conversations about life. One time, driving back from a concert, we debated fate versus free will. Like, is everything all planned out by God, or do we, as humans, have control over our destinies? I figured like a senior-level class, I could put that question off for the time being. Hand me that pipe, I said. Jeff once told me, we need a new drug. I agreed that everything was getting old and I was too young for things to get old. I guess that's why people try nasty drugs like heroin, cocaine, and crystal meth. Sex was a mystery. I knew my body wanted it, but I had no idea how delicate the art of making love was or that making love and fucking were very different, like the sun and the moon. I just knew that I had an urge deep in my body, and like a frat boy trying to score on a Friday night, I put little thought into the consequences. Charisse and I wrestled in the dorm room bed, driven to madness by alcohol. Growing up Catholic, I'd had little education on sex outside of the classroom of public education and really had no clue how to make love. But no one other than your lover can truly show you how to make love. So we fucked. And maybe once there was magic for a brief moment, but most certainly, it was drunken wrestling. We were desperate to achieve the act, but there was little of being in the moment, which was so important to lovemaking. 
and that was the style in which I participated in everything. A young man desperate to be a part of the world, but with no education on how to do so. I kept following, and everything was about to fall apart. Charisse and I only lasted a few months. My first heartbreak. She ended up cheating on me, but probably only in the terms of my definition. She was my first girlfriend, but we never discussed the terms, or any sort of commitment to one another. She slept with another hippie during a weekend at a concert. My college experience at Southern Illinois only lasted a semester. My grades were slipping, and after discussing it with my parents, I decided to take a semester off. I moved back into their basement, and somewhere in the mix of this, a terrible depression came over me. Looking back on it now, I can't really see where the storm came from, only that it must have been the culmination of depression, fear, anxiety, a lack of self-esteem, and of course, drugs and alcohol. But the storm was brewing. I went back to the job I had in high school, bussing tables at a local sports bar and restaurant. I worked nights and would often not get out of my bed until early afternoon. My parents were frustrated with me and started charging me rent. I argued with them on everything from my marijuana use to my rejection of Catholicism. I continued to smoke a pack of cigarettes a day, smoke weed all day, and drink at night, sometimes alone. I still occasionally pop the dexedrine, if for no other reason than out of habit perhaps to work harder and be more focused. I don't know if it was the dexedrine or nicotine or marijuana that brought the disillusionment and paranoia, but I began to think that I was sick and I was going to die soon. That had to be the way out, I thought. Look at all the heroes from the 60s who died in their 20s. Surely that must be my path, I thought. I went to the doctor and got an STD test. That was what was wrong with me. I was certain of it. Charisse must have given me some disease. After all, her hygiene was beyond questionable, and she had cheated on me. I labored in pain and confusion while I waited for the test to arrive back. At the beginning of my work shift, I would smoke cigarettes in the bathroom and just sit on the toilet and hide for the first hour when I was supposed to be cleaning. The test came back, and I was clean. I celebrated by myself with cigarettes, and the high of being healthy lasted only for a few hours. I was far from healthy. A downward spiral continued. There were little moments of happiness. My job was my savior, a chance for action, even if it was only for a moment to escape the tyranny of my mind. Every insane, depressed person hopes for that, I imagine, to know that maybe one day life would be normal again, and that not every day you will wake up and ask God why you were born and what your purpose is on planet Earth. One day, in the middle of all this, Caleb took me climbing. This time we didn't have to drive four hours south to Carbondale. We simply crossed over to the other side of the tracks in Bloomington to the climbing gym. It was the idea of a madman, surely, to clean out a series of abandoned grain silos, paste plastic climbing holes in the concrete walls, and open it up as a climbing gym. At the time, my hometown climbing gym, Upper Limits, was billed as the largest in the world. And something about the simplicity and immediacy, the sport of it, drew me in much more than climbing outside. It was a pill of Prozac, a shot of serotonin and endorphins into my hollow body. It all begins with the figure eight knot, the knot of eternity, a fitting beginning to something that can capture your life and make it whole over and over and be at the center, that place you can go as long as you're able to, to enter a moving meditation. That is now, this was then. It took me three days to master that knot. 
But once I had it, I had it forever. Caleb was a real climber. His brother and his uncle were climbers, and he'd climbed Devil's Tower as a kid. He always spoke of going out west and had a general discontent for Bloomington and the Midwest. He was often quite negative, and so was I. We both seemed to think that the world had little to offer us. Get him climbing or talking about climbing, though, and a sparkle appeared in his eye, like the magic of Devil's Tower came shining through some metaphysical channel into the moment. So, we climbed. The 65-foot grain silos towered above me and were an immediate goal to reach the top, one of the more tangible goals I'd had in forever. We bouldered as well, crashing down to the pads in a cloud of chalk dust when we fell. We did pull-ups, and it felt good to exercise again. I hadn't had much of an exercise routine since my front driveway basketball days. Climbing was the only source of light in those dark days. I immediately took my best friend Tim climbing there, and he liked it as much as I did. He was a wrestler in high school and had a natural tendency for the balance and precarious physical situations that climbing puts you in. Soon enough, Caleb, Tim, and I were a trio of climbing buddies. We returned back to southern Illinois for the outdoor experience, and I was planning to head back there for school in the fall. But a dark cloud had moved into every cell of my being, and I never told anyone about it, which made it worse. I was possessed by doubt, fear, and delusion. I should have confided in Tim. He was my best friend, and that's what best friends are for. He was so quiet and shy that in many situations I was our leader. When we would go to shows and sell beer and weed, I would do all the talking. I even got us out of a couple situations that could have landed us in jail, like the time we approached a roadblock in the middle of the cornfields in Indiana after a fish show in Indian Creek. We were in a line of cars being stopped and searched, illegally I presume, so I made up a speech to an officer about how we'd made a wrong turn and we knew our rights and we did not plan on being searched. Somehow, that worked. Moments like that rushed us with adrenaline and made us feel alive. Tim and I were a duo, the slow and steady tortoise and the quick, erratic crow. The idea that I was sick kept coming back. Maybe it was the dexedrine, the cigarettes, the soda, the alcohol, or maybe it was I mixed up all of that with marijuana all the time. I began to research diseases online. I was fatigued and I was depressed. I could also not stop thinking of Charisse. She appeared in my dreams, and I hoped to have her back someday, even if she had given me some sickness. After searching and searching the internet, I decided I had hepatitis. I went back to the doctor and got a test. I waited in pain and agony for the results to come back. Three days later, I called to check in. The office said I had tested positive. I didn't know what to do. But in the back of my mind, there were two thoughts. Suicide and running away to find Charisse. She was on the East Coast, I'd heard, on fish tour. These were the days before cell phones, and I decided I would hit the road in the middle of the night and leave behind a trail of notes explaining my actions to my friends and family. It doesn't even make sense now, but now I have the angle of repose and happiness and contentment. I have a foundation now of good decision-making. At that point, I had been making bad decisions for years, and I was nearing the bottom of a shame spiral. My selfish, insane departure had perfect timing. My parents were moving and our house was in boxes. I felt so much despair and guilt mixed with an excitement that I could be escaping the tyranny of my mind. My selfish, insane departure had perfect timing. My parents were moving and our house was in boxes. I felt so much despair and guilt 
mixed with an excitement that I could be escaping the tyranny of my mind. I could not stand my own mind. With my letters written, valuable sold for gas money, and a fresh pack of cigarettes, I left in the middle of the night in my little compact car to find Cherise. All right, folks, that is episode two of the Dirtbag State of Mind podcast from the climbing zine. I am Luke Mihal. In the next episode, we are going to get into um, the next phase of the journey in this book, which was me running away from home and eventually reconciling uh, with my family and also finding a new home out in Colorado. And it was a, um, a series of amazing coincidences, some might say. Perhaps I had some angels looking out after me. I'm never going to know that. Um, But after I was reading through this, I I realized that my first climbing trip I ever took was with a bunch of heroin addicts. And if that didn't set the tone of what I was going to choose, you know, I never never did the hard drugs. I really didn't. I, I did some psychedelics, but I never got into coke or heroin. Yeah, very excited to get into episode three. I really appreciate everyone listening. Please do subscribe at climbingzine.com or check out our Instagram page of the climbing zine. And you can subscribe there at the link in our bio. We are the world's creative climbing publication. We're looking forward to uh, continuing this journey with the Dirtbag State of Mind podcast and reading this book, this memoir, American Climber. Looking forward to uh, catching up wherever you guys happen to be listening. I'm grateful for your ears and your time. Thank you.